Hi, welcome to this year's Aseris Yimei Teshuvah Shir. The title of my shir is Musical Instruments in Shul. Is it appropriate to have live music to accompany tefillot? It is a fascinating topic and to get to the bottom of it, we're going to need to look at both history and halacha to gain a perspective on an issue that has vexed generations of rabbis for over 200 years. I'm going to begin with a halachic inquiry that was submitted to Ravdovitzvi Hoffman by an unknown rabbi. First, let me tell you who Ravdovitzvi Hoffman was. Ravdovitzvi Hoffman, born in 1843, died in 1921, was a prominent Orthodox rabbi based in Berlin, known for his deep Talmudic erudition and for his significant contributions to Jewish scholarship, including his defense of the authenticity of the Hebrew scriptures, Tanakh, against biblical criticism. As the head of the Hildesheimer Rabbinical Seminary in Berlin, he played a pivotal role in training a generation of Orthodox rabbis in Germany. Rav Hoffman's stance toward the reform movement was one of staunch opposition, consistent with the views of many traditional Orthodox rabbis of his time. He believed in the divine origin and immutability of the Hebrew scriptures and the Talmud of Midrash, unlike the leaders of reform. His writings and activities demonstrated a strong commitment to upholding the traditions and halachic norms of Orthodox Judaism, and he saw the innovations and changes made by the reform movement as a significant departure from authentic Judaism. In this context, Rav Hoffman authored numerous responses, chuvot, and scholarly writings that defended traditional Jewish practice and thought against the challenges posed by the reform movement and modern biblical criticism. But back to the Shiloh. You can find the Shiloh in Rav Hoffman's Schutzsefer, Malamed Lahoyal, Volume 1, Simon Tezain. This is my imperfect translation of the Shiloh, and full disclosure, all my translations are imperfect, deliberately so, as I have translated the Hebrew in a way that conveys the essence of the Hebrew verbiage, if not necessarily the exact meaning of each word. Here is the Shiloh. In a particular city, the board of a shul decided to install an organ instrument into their shul, and the rabbi there, although he tried as hard as he could, could not revoke this board decision, which is why he now wants to reduce the negative impact by at least allowing them to play the organ on weekdays, such as at weddings and on the king's birthday. At the very least, he believes that this will mean that Shabbos and holidays will not be violated. Moreover, he is afraid that if he resigns from his rabbinic post and abandons his position as a result of the organ being installed, another rabbi will take up his job who won't just permit the organ to be played on Shabbos and festivals, but will also allow things that are far worse. Therefore, the current rabbi of the city has asked me, can he remain in his position and allow the organ to be played on weekdays? That's the Shiloh. And this is how Rav Hoffman begins his tshuva, which is dated 1897. Before we come to any conclusions regarding the matter at hand, let's look at the views of those respected scholars, the prominent leaders of their time, who issued their ruling in the year 1819, when the evil, i.e. the reformers, first emerged in Hamburg. 
At that time, a group in Hamburg began introducing changes in Jewish religious practices contrary to the rulings of the local rabbinic leadership. Consequently, the Hamburg Beisdin collected letters and rulings from the leading scholars of the generation and compiled them into a well-known book called Ela Divri Habris. These are the words of the covenant. In that book, these righteous and esteemed scholars took a stand and forbade three specific sinful practices. One of those prohibitions was against playing musical instruments in the synagogue on Shabbos and Jewish holidays, even if played by a non-Jew. All the scholars in the book unanimously agreed that it is forbidden to play musical instruments in the synagogue on these days, even if played by a non-Jew. However, there was no consensus among them regarding playing an organ in the synagogue on regular weekdays. In fact, after examining the matter in detail, I found three different opinions among the scholars. So, here's the story behind the story. What happened in Hamburg in 1819? What was the book Ela Divre Habris all about? And why is any of this relevant to the hapless rabbi who is posing his question to Rav Hoffman? Are you ready? Here goes. In the early 19th century, German Jewry was going through a transformation as Jews were becoming more emancipated. More and more Jews were less and less connected to their Jewish roots and their Jewish faith. They had become fluent in German as opposed to Yiddish-Deutsch or Yiddish, and they were mixing with Gentiles. Economic and civil restrictions were lifted. Assimilation was rife and particularly conversion to Christianity, which afforded opportunities that were not open to assimilated Jews. There were also scholarly Jews, some trained in the traditional world, others outside it, who were beginning to question the fundamental underpinnings of Jewish theology and the importance of maintaining the laws and customs that had sustained Judaism for centuries in Europe and beyond, but were seen as obscurantist and as an impediment to keeping the emerging generations in the fold. Step in Israel Jacobson, a pivotal activist and an advocate for embracing new ideas and innovations in order to propel Jews into the modern era. Jacobson was born in Halberstadt, the only child of a prosperous businessman. He was extremely bright and a voracious reader, although he lacked depth and any kind of systematic philosophy. Totally self-educated in German literature and also in rabbinic literature to the extent that university professors considered him a Hebrew scholar. He married Minna Mink Samson at the age of 18, linking him to the influential and extremely wealthy Samson Oppenheimer Wertheimer clan and facilitating his friendship with the powerful Duke of Brunswick. This connection proved very useful when, in 1803, the oppressive Leipzig tax on Jews was abolished in the Duke's territory directly as a result of Jacobson's lobbying. Jacobson embraced an inclusive vision for education, and in 1801 he founded a groundbreaking school in Sissen, a small German town not far from Hanover. Unique for its time, the school educated both Jewish and Christian children together, providing free board and lodging. Jacobson was also a staunch advocate 
for religious reform. Driven by his belief that it was important to instill religious values early on in a child's life, in 1810 he constructed a synagogue within the grounds of his school and he introduced innovative practices for the services, like saying prayers in German and the inclusion of organ music. Although these changes were definitely progressive, they were aimed at schoolchildren and were also, at that stage, vaguely rooted in traditional Jewish ideals. Jacobson was not yet viewed as a radical reformer, but rather as someone who was interested in exterior modifications to keep Jewish children in the fold. After moving to Berlin, he held similarly progressive services at his home, but this time the services also included adults. Later on, the services were held at the mansion of the wealthy banker Jacob Hertz Beer, whose son was Jacob Meyer Beer, the famous composer, better known as Giacomo Meyer Beer. But the Prussian authorities soon shut down the private synagogue after complaints from Berlin's Jewish community leadership. In the meantime, a group of Jews in Hamburg, who were deliberately looking to modernize and reform Jewish worship and to bring it more in line with contemporary German culture and societal norms, founded a new synagogue known as the New Israelite Temple Association in 1818. They adopted all of Israel Jacobson's tried and tested innovations and added a few of their own. The new temple in Hamburg became a focal point for reformers and it is considered by Jewish historians to be the first ever official reform synagogue, fully open to the Jewish public as an alternative to traditional synagogues. Some of the reforms introduced at the Hamburg temple included services in German instead of Hebrew, the introduction of an organ to accompany prayers even on Shabbos and Jewish holidays, with non-Jews playing the instrument, and removing or altering certain prayers and rituals that the temple's founders considered outdated or inconsistent with modern sensibilities. In 1819, two of the regulars at the temple published the first ever reform prayer book, which abbreviated the Hebrew prayers, introduced German prayers in place of Hebrew prayers, opened from left to right, and systematically removed or replaced segments that referred to the future restoration of sacrifices when the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem by the Messiah. The movers and shakers behind the Hamburg temple corresponded with Italian and Hungarian rabbis known to be lenient in matters of liturgical practices, selectively and diplomatically explaining their innovations in such a way that they would get their approval. The resulting publication, Naga HaTzedek, compiled by a scholar of obscure origins called Eliezer Lieberman, offered a rabbinically styled advocacy for the reforms adopted by the Hamburg Temple. While Jacobson's Seeson Synagogue which had adopted reforms, was widely ignored, probably because Jacobson was not perceived as a progressive crusader, but rather as a kindly, if slightly misguided, educator with limited reach. The Hamburg Temple, that was inspired by Jacobson, coupled with its published supporting text compiled by Lieberman, was seen by the traditional rabbinic establishment as a grave threat 
to the future of Jewish life and practice. To put it mildly, the rabbis went to war, pulling out all the stops to destroy the reform innovations before they infiltrated into the traditional community. Two books were published. First up was Eile de Vrihavris, issued by the Beistin of Hamburg, which addressed the three major areas of reform adopted by the temple. Eile de Vrihavris included letters from the major rabbinic luminaries of the era, including Rav Moshe Sofer, the Chassam Sofer, who was born in Germany, but was now chief rabbi of Pressburg, Bratislava, effectively making him the most senior rabbinic authority of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And from this moment on, the Chassam Sofer made it his life's mission to uproot any hint of reform influence from the traditional Jewish world. Chodosh osu min he said, using an obscure halachic phrase relating to the grain harvest to convey the idea that any progressive innovations, even if they seem innocuous, are prohibited by the Torah, period. And now let me tell you the unanimous traditional rabbinic stance regarding the use of an organ in shul to enhance the prayer experience on Shabbat, even if the organ was played by Gentiles. This is an Ele de Vrihabris. Yes, it was true that some Italian rabbis had allowed it from time to time, as they wrote to Lieberman, but that had all been done in the spirit of traditionalism, not in an effort to reform the Jewish faith. The Hamburg Temple, even if it pretended to be upholding halacha, only had one intention, wrote the rabbis in Eile de Vrihabris, to uproot and destroy true Judaism. A year later, in 1820, the second publication appeared, Tzorah HaChaim, by Rav Avraham Levenstam, the rabbi of Emden. He addressed nine areas of reform and explained why they were not okay. He ended the book with a section called Kate's Hayomin, in which he reiterated in strong terms the requirement for every Jew to believe in Moshiach. This was an area which was being challenged by the reformers, who were methodically removing all references to the Messianic era from their prayers. And this is the background to the Hamburg Temple controversy. In fact, it was this controversy that set the scene for all the many showdowns between traditional Jews, who would soon be known as Orthodox Jews, and Reformed Jews over the remainder of the 19th century and beyond. Now let us return to Rav David Zvi Hoffman. He detected three opinions by three different groups of rabbis in Eile Divrihabris with regard to the use of musical instruments in shul on weekdays. The first group was comprised of rabbis who were unsure or didn't address the issue. Yes, they were unequivocal that it was forbidden to play music on Shabbos and festivals, even if the Gentile was playing the music, he was the organist. But they didn't specify any ruling regarding weekdays. It is possible they believed that on weekdays it was allowed, or perhaps they were uncertain and didn't want to definitively rule one way or another. Among these rabbis were included the Hamburg based in itself, who had published the book, Rabbi Meshulam Zalman HaKoyen of Furt, author of Big Day Kahuna and a Talmud of Rav Yonis Neibeshitz. Rabbi Eliezer Lev Rokeach, author of the Sefer Shemen Rokeach, and Rabbi Avram Tiktin of Breslau. One particularly significant rabbi who was uncertain was Rabbi Kiva Eger, the rabbi of Posen, and he was one of the leading pedagogues and Talmudic scholars of his day. Then there were 
a range of rabbis who explicitly permitted playing music on weekdays during services in the synagogue, including Rav Eliezer Frechlis, the Avbezdin of Prague, and Rabbi Shmuel Landa, who was the son of the Nodwi Huda, who was a great scholar in his own right. They wrote as follows. Playing musical instruments on Shabbos is strictly forbidden, even if played by a non-Jew. In our congregation, where instruments are used during the welcoming of the Shabbos, the custom here is that musicians are required to put away and remove, remove their musical instruments half an hour before we say Baruch for Marev. <laughs> so here's the thing, wow, right? It's quite a revelation. Apparently, in the main shul in Prague, they had live instruments for Kabbalah Shabbos with a half-hour break before Mariv. Maybe it was for a shir. And then afterwards, they davened Mariv. We're going to hear more about that in a minute. Then there were ten rabbis from Lvov, part of this second group, who signed a letter in which they declared as follows. All of us strictly forbid playing the organ on Shabbos and Yom Tov. We only permit its use on weekdays, namely on Friday evenings and on the eve of festivals, before the sanctity of the Shabbos or the festival begins. Additionally, we only allow it when the instruments are played by Jews who are God-fearing. So there you have it. Another remarkable revelation. Rather than use Gentiles to play the instruments in their shul in Lvov, those who played instruments in Lvov shul on weekdays had to be Jewish. Finally, there were the rabbis who explicitly prohibited playing the organ in the synagogue, both on Shabbos and on weekdays. They were, among others, Rabbi Avram Naftali Hertz Scheuer of Mainz, who invoked the fact that we are still in exile to explain why we can't have instruments playing in a synagogue, even on weekdays. Then there was the Chassam Sofa, who explained that since the originators of synagogue prayers did not institute the use of musical instruments as part of the prayer service, this shows that they did not favor it. In a second letter, also in Eile Divrabris, the Chassam Sofa adds that it is prohibited to use musical instruments in shul at any time because doing so is imitating non-Jewish customs. Rabbi Mordechai Barnett of Nicholsburg, the chief rabbi of Moravia, made a similar comment in his letter and concluded by saying, in my opinion, there's a significant doubt as to whether having an organ in a synagogue is permitted even on a weekday, and it should be prohibited at the very least because of this doubt. And then there was the eminent Rabbi Yaakov Loberbaum of Lissa, author of the Chavaz Das, who ruled that it is strictly prohibited to play an organ in the synagogue, both on weekdays and on Shabbos, even if a non-Jew is the organist. Rav Hoffman also quotes Rabbi Levenstam's book, Shreyachayim, which states clearly that playing the organ is prohibited both on weekdays and on Shabbos due to the biblical injunction from Vayikra chapter 18, You shall not follow their statutes, implying that using an organ in shul is an imitation of non-Jewish customs of prayer in their churches. Rav Hoffman cites a variety of other senior rabbinic authorities who came down firmly on the side of those who prohibited the use of an organ in shul in the decades that followed the Hamburg Temple controversy. All of them agreed to prohibit the use of the organ, he says, both on weekdays and on Shabbos. 
And this restriction is included in our rabbinic proclamation that we give along with the ordination certificate, the smicha, to every student of our yeshiva here in Berlin. Playing the organ is prohibited due to Therefore, it is forbidden both on weekdays and on Shabbos. Rav Hoffman adds that he saw that Rabbi Shamshan Raphael Hirsch in his commentary on the Yikra chapter 18, Pasuk Gimel, also prohibits playing an organ in shul both on weekdays and on Shabbos because of Rav Hoffman then goes into great detail comparing the use of an organ to accompany prayers in a synagogue to the musical accompaniment at services held in the Beis Hamikdash, the temple, in ancient times in Yerushalayim. He launches into a long discussion about whether there was some ancient form of an organ used to accompany services in the Beis Hamikdash, quoting the Gemara in Erechin, Dafyud Omad Beis, which begins by stating that there was no hydrolis in the temple. The hydrolis was a water-powered organ common among the Greeks and the Romans, but apparently it was so loud that it overpowered any other music, which is why it was no use for the temple service, as you wouldn't have been able to hear the Levium singing. But there was another organ-like instrument called Magrefa that was used in the temple. That's what the Gemara tells us, and this is how the Gemara describes the Magrefa. There were ten holes in it, and each one of them would emit ten types of tone, which means the entire instrument emitted one hundred different notes. Rav Hoffman concludes that, the, that this Magrefa instrument was a less overwhelming kind of organ, not like the very loud hydrolis. And that is what they used in the Beis Hamikdosh, alongside the flutes and harps that they used to accompany the Levium singing. Rav Hoffman now addresses the very large elephant in the room, namely the organ that was built into the main shul in Prague, which was used during prayers. And, to be clear, it had been in use during the era of some of the greatest rabbis of previous generations, including Rav David Oppenheimer, Rav Jonas Neibeschitz, and Rav Yecheskel Landau. The problem Rav Hoffman needs to address is this. How is it possible to ban an organ in shul in the present if these great rabbis of Prague in the past had attended a synagogue which had a permanently installed organ that was regularly used? It's a tough question, right? To try, to try and deal with this, the Chassam Sofa suggested that the organ in Prague was very specific to Prague, and it was only in one particular shul, not all the shuls, and he adds, somewhat conveniently, if you ask me, it's a bit convenient, that he had heard that when the organ broke some years earlier, they never ended up fixing it, which means that now they don't use it anymore. Rav Hoffman also quotes Rav Avram Levenstam from Tzrachayim, who claims that when the organ was originally installed in Prague, it was not yet common for there to be organs in churches, and therefore it was not a violation of the prohibition of Let's debunk that claim first. The organ actually began to make its way into churches around the year 900 CE. By the 1400s, the use of organs in churches and cathedrals was well established throughout Europe. The Meisel Synagogue in Prague, that was the synagogue with the organ, was built in 1592, centuries after the organ was already a common feature in churches. As to the Chassam Sofer's justifications, 
The fact that the organ was only in one shul is irrelevant. If this was the most prominent shul in the city, and it was a shul in which the rabbis regularly prayed, how does the fact that it was the only shul with an organ make any difference? And there were other shuls with organs, perhaps not in Prague, but they existed, in addition to which, the fact that they never fixed the organ in Prague after it broke is proof of nothing. Maybe they didn't want an organ to accompany them during their davening anymore, or, or, or maybe they needed the money for other repairs in the shul, so they didn't repair the organ, or, or maybe it was too difficult to repair such an ancient instrument. Who knows? The point is this. An Orthodox synagogue in Prague had an organ that was used for Kabbalah Shabbos every week and no doubt for other occasions as well, such as weddings. So in and of itself, clearly, this was not a violation of halacha. The Mishnah in Sanhedrin tells us that after the Sanhedrin was exiled, a prohibition was instituted against playing music in banquet halls so that the temple's destruction could be commemorated by the absence of live music, a concept known as Zecher Lechorban. Rambam Maimonides provides a comprehensive perspective on this prohibition, drawing from a Gemara in Gittin. He says that it is always forbidden to enjoy instrumental music as a way of commemorating the Beis HaMikdash destruction, not just during the period before Tishvah, but the whole year round. Tosfus present a more lenient interpretation. According to them, the prohibition on music primarily targets settings like banquet halls or circumstances reminiscent of royalty because princes and princesses are accustomed to waking up and going to bed with the accompaniment of live music. Just by the way, and this is really interesting, over the seven decades of Queen Elizabeth's, Elizabeth II's reign, the British public came to know many of her quirks, her corgis, her hats, her handbags, and even her unique wave. But it was only after she died that they discovered a lesser-known fixture of the Queen's life, her personal piper. For most of her reign, every morning, the Queen was woken up by the sound of bagpipes being played beneath her window, and this was at all of her residences around the UK. The piper to the sovereign acted as a personal alarm clock for the Queen, playing his bag bagpipes for 15 minutes each morning below her window. It's fascinating. But to come back to the prohibition regarding music, the Shulchan Aruch adopts the position of the Rambam, and the Ramah aligned himself with the perspective of Tosfus. And at least one opinion suggests that this prohibition of live music applies to prayer services. Rabbi Ben Sion Meachai Uziel, the first Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel, who is usually a very lenient Poisek, wrote about this topic and emphasized that the prohibition against instrumental music isn't just confined to homes or banquet halls, it extends to synagogues as well. Let us turn to another consideration. There is no question that the desire to integrate an organ into the Hamburg temple and into the synagogue of the rabbi who was asking Rav Hoffman the halachic question was inspired by church practices. But the truth is, Jewish tradition has often borrowed from external cultures when it has seen fit to do so. In which case, what are the red lines? In other words, when is it okay and when is it not okay. Tosfus identified two categories of non-Jewish customs. The first are rituals which emanate from idolatrous beliefs. 
These are not allowed even if the Torah provides hints of their acceptance, which means if the reason you have an organ in a shul is to make it more like a church service, that would mean it is forbidden. But if the reason you have the organ is to make the shul service nicer, and you may have discovered that the organ improves the prayer service because churches have organs, in that case, there is room for leniency. The point is this. In the situation being faced by rabbis of the 19th century, with radical reformers challenging the system and trying to be more like the Gentiles, leniency and open-mindedness were in short supply. Both Rav Hoffman and Rav Shamshan Raphael Hirsch concurred that practices that are distinctly idolatrous, like having a church-style organ in shul, stood beyond the pale of permissible changes, even if there were good and logical reasons to permit it. Rav Hoffman added one more element to the equation. The Talmud in Chulin Daf Mem Omid Aleph discusses making an arch in one's home and in the marketplace and says one should not do so as it emulates Gentile customs and gives the appearance that we want to be like them. Which means that even if we assume there is no concern having an organ in shul due to idolatrous statutes, it should not be permitted because it emulates heretics. The fact that the reformers did it is what makes it osur. The reformers only installed their organ to differentiate themselves from traditional Judaism. It is a symbol of their heresy, and therefore it is forbidden. Do you know why? Because if we allow the installation of an organ in orthodox shuls, the reformers will then say that we are copying them, and they will innovate more, and orthodoxy will follow these new leniencies too, and before you know it, who knows what might be allowed? These are the words that Rav Hoffman wrote, and you need to remember this was in 1897. Soon they will permit other prohibitions which in their opinion are not tolerated by modern times. Indeed, experience shows that such people are not satisfied with a small leniency, but continue to expand their sinning. If you start with an organ, before long, as a result of the organ, there will be female choirs in shuls. The prayer service, as received from our ancestors, will be breached, and the inner core of worship will be destroyed by additions and subtractions, changes and alternatives, testifying to the fact that the reformers have won. For this reason, there is even more of a prohibition against the organ nowadays, because it emulates the heretics and supports the destruction of our faith and our religion. In his conclusion, Rav Hoffman tells the rabbi who sent him the Shaila, if they use a different instrument other than an organ, and if it is not used for davening, and if it is used during the weekday only, one may be lenient. But only if forbidding the instrument may lead to the rabbi getting fired, which might mean that the synagogue does much, does much worse things as a result. Rav Hoffman adds that if one of his students allowed an organ for weekday use and not for davening, he wouldn't re revoke his smicha. To be honest, it's hardly the most confidence-inspiring ruling I have ever heard. But, and this is important, we need to put all of this into perspective. You see, the trouble with shut svarim, rabbinic responsa, is that they are usually written for a specific time and place, and they therefore reflect the prevailing atmosphere of the era of their composition. 
In most cases, after presenting many different perspectives, the rabbi answering the halachic query comes down firmly one way or another, which means that in the process he is ditching various theoretical rulings he might have come up with based on the range of sources and situations he cited. And figure this, the 19th century was a very scary time for Jewish life. Jews were in the process of being handed their freedom, and they used this opportunity to revoke their Jewishness in countless ways. Sometimes all they wanted was not to be bound by Jewish restrictions and expectations anymore. And sometimes what they wanted was to become Gentiles. And sometimes what they wanted was to combine both approaches, to be some kind of hybrid Jew-Gentile. The Hamburg Temple controversy caused a trauma for the Jewish people. Here were Jews who were familiar with traditional Judaism, but who wanted to change it up so that they could fit in better and feel more German. If that meant having an organ in shul and praying in German and abandoning Jewish national ideals in favor of German nationalism and loyalties, so be it. They were looking for the hybrid solution. Unsurprisingly, traditional rabbis reacted very strongly and very negatively to the Hamburg Temple, and even the most lenient of them recoiled from giving any ground for them to go ahead with their proposals, even if there was halachic or historical precedent for those proposals, or if the reasons to disallow what they wanted to do were not particularly strong. Because what the Hamburg Temple founders wanted to do was to undermine the fabric of Judaism, not to bring people closer to their Jewish heritage. And of course, the biggest proof is that most of their children converted and became Christians. There is even a rumor that Eliezer Lieberman, the author of Nogard Tzedek, who formulated the rabbinic arguments in favor of the Hamburg Temple, was later baptized and became a Catholic. The installation of an organ inside a shul, notwithstanding the one that was grandfathered into the Meisel Synagogue in Prague, was a deliberate attempt to echo the practices of the church. That's what made it forbidden. Wanting to have a Gentile play it on Shabbos and festivals only increased the concern. Clearly, this was the direction in which they were heading. Other instruments might have been fine, but they wanted an organ, and everyone knew why they wanted an organ. And that is why it was banned. As to whether the organ was being played for Shabbos services or weekday services, clearly their temple was not going to operate on weekdays, so the premise, for them at least, was academic. Which is why many of the rabbis were unsure what to say about this question of organ on weekdays in shul, or were ambivalent on the topic. Meanwhile, those who were adamant that it made no difference if it was Shabbos or weekday, it was forbidden, simply wanted to shut the whole thing down. This was, in essence, a theological controversy dressed up as a halachic ruling. In Rav Hoffman's time, things remained just the same as they had been 80 years earlier. In fact, in the scenario he was presented with, we see an Orthodox rabbi trying to maintain Orthodox norms in a synagogue that is clearly drifting over to reform. Many such rabbis would either lose their jobs or be forced to compromise their principles. We have no record about what happened 
to this particular rabbi, but we should definitely sympathize with his predicament. And so it would continue, even until the end of the 20th century, with the reform and conservative movements using live orchestras to attract crowds for Friday night services. But alongside these trends, there arose a new strength and a new pride and a new confidence among Orthodox Jews. Jewish music was no longer confined to the formal liturgical music of Chazanut, which in many respects mimic the choral and operatic style used in churches. Hasidic singing and dancing became popular, and the fear that live music in a shul would propel Orthodox Jews away from tradition evolved into a view that live music, if done properly, can enhance the davening experience, and, just as the originators of the organ in the Meisel Synagogue in Prague must have understood the value of using an organ when halacha permitted it, so too rabbis today understand the value of using live instruments in shul when halacha permits it. When Ravad Yosef was asked about using musical instruments in shul, and believe me, he was never one to be overly lenient or to dismiss fears of a slippery slope, amazingly, he was extremely positive, referring to various Sephardic custom events that take place in a synagogue such as Tawahid on Erev Rosh Chodesh Nisan and the Simchas Pesach She'eva celebrations on Sukkot. He said, our custom is to rule leniently in this matter and allow live musical accompaniment, for this is not considered following the tenets of the Gentiles. Ravavadio himself attended many joyous occasions that were held in synagogues where music was being played and he spoke words of Torah to those who were there. In August 2023, Rav David Lau, the chief rabbi of Israel, responded to an inquiry about whether it is forbidden to have musicians present at a selichot service. This was his response in a published letter that went viral. The phenomenon of combining selichot with musical instruments, is not new and it exists, he wrote. Your question is whether this is the right thing to do. In the first instance, it is appropriate to strictly adhere to the manner in which Selichot was said until recently. In the accepted version, without musical instruments, as we have learned, the main music is in the mouth. However, since there are those for whom musical instruments add a sense of longing for prayer, it should not be prevented. Rav Lau added, the struggle waged at the time, during the 19th century, against the inclusion of musical instruments was because it was the way of the reform. That's the way they prayed. They introduced foreign elements, prayer in the sanctuaries with organ music, and the rabbis forbade it because of the law of Avuchukosem Leiselechu. Rav Lau mentions Rav Hoffman's tshuva in his letter, not the negative parts, but the parts that cite the organ in the synagogue in Prague that was allowed by the rabbis of Prague. In other words, stripped of the negative baggage of the reform movement, we can go back to the pre-reform times of Prague where musical instruments were allowed in the synagogue and used according to the halacha. Rav Lau's letter concludes as follows. Nowadays the matter has been settled. And it is no longer the case that accompanying slichot prayers with the playing of guitars or violins is considered copying the behavior of Gentiles. Although the original tradition remains in place and organs are still forbidden today 
inside the synagogue, by which Rabbi Lau means the big permanent old-fashioned pipe organs that you see in churches, because of Gentile customs. But other musical instruments are permitted, he says. So that's it. You've heard the whole story, a roller coaster ride that involves history, intrigue, religious evolution, and many other elements. But at the end of it all, the bottom line is this. If using musical instruments in shul enhances your davening, and it does not go against the halacha, because it's not on Shabbos or Yom Tov, then there is no reason for it not to be allowed. Thank you.